Watch this. It's so easy to place people in boxes. <laughs> Drawing lines, creating signs. There's us, and there's them. Those we feel comfortable around, and those we don't. There are those of us with many chapters, and those just starting their own stories. There's the well-to-do, and those doing what they can. There are those we share something with, and those we don't seem to share anything with. Welcome, and thank you for coming today, guys. Today I'm going to be conducting an experiment uh, where I'll ask you a series of questions. Now these questions will be very personal questions, and for us to get a true result, I need you to be completely honest with how you respond. The first question I have is, who in here was the class clown?
video and I don't know about you, but it really touched me because I think we all put people in boxes at times. And you might be sitting there saying, oh, I don't judge people, I don't, well, God bless you, more power to you. But I think our natural inclination is to see people and make some assumptions or, or formulate some ideas. And you may not even verbalise them, but there's a thing called internal judging as well. You don't necessarily have to go up to someone and say something. And we're going through the book of Romans, and Romans touches on really sensitive topics. So it might be a little ouch today. You might already be feeling a little ouch after seeing a video like that because you've just been reminded that no matter what someone is like, whether they're a believer or not, no matter how they live their life, no matter what's going on, they might live in a mansion, they might live in a, in a straw hut, they might be from a certain culture that's different to yours, but everybody is created in the image of God. And, and that's what we're talking about. The book of Romans is in five parts. We're still in part one. Uh, which is the necessity of faith. And today's topic from Romans chapter 2 is an ouchy one. Judgmentalism and hypocrisy. So are you ready? Everyone breathe? It's all good. (laughs) Jesus taught that looking down on people, no matter who they are, is wrong. And this is because Jesus knew that everyone's in the same boat. We've all sinned. The Bible even tells us that. We all fall short of the glory of God. We may be tempted to say, oh yeah, but Pastor Jeremy, that person's sin is so far worse than what I did. But sin is sin. When it comes to what we deserve, it's only by the grace of God that any of us escape death, no matter what our sin. But it's important for us to understand that looking down on anyone is wrong. In chapter 2, Paul addresses this topic, those who may be tempted to look down on others. and, And more specifically, he's addressing... Those who, after reading the first chapter, and it's a while since we looked at chapter 1, but when, when, when we read that chapter, he's addressing those of us that perhaps quickly think, oh, that's awful that people are like that, forgetting that we're all like that. No one's holier than thou and better than anyone else, because we've all sinned. And we all fall short of God's standard. And that's why we need Jesus. If you think you haven't sinned as bad as the other person, well, do you really need Jesus now? We all need Jesus. So let's read Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge, another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. In other words, that goes for you too. This scripture applies to everybody, not just a certain people group. Judgmental people obviously have the capacity to distinguish between right and wrong because they're making judgment. But here's the snag. 
If you have the ability to distinguish between right and wrong and then you do wrong, what's your excuse? But it's true. If we can judge others, it means we know the difference between right and wrong, yet we don't necessarily apply that to ourselves. Today it might be like, you know, Paul coming up to you, you're eating at, um, I don't know, an Italian restaurant, and when you eat spaghetti bolognese, you're going to make a mess, aren't you? Particularly kids. Particularly like three and under. It's... <laughs> but it's like you're going up to someone, and your shirt has the bolognese all over it, and the person you're talking to has a little dot. You go, ha, look at your dot. Forgetting that you've got a big splurge of a mess right here. Jesus said it just like that. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the plank that's in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. It's from the book of Luke chapter 6. Paul then points out that judgmental people do not make judgments based on truth. If they did, they would see their own faults. But see, God's judgment is based on truth. And therefore, he is the only one that has the right to judge us. Because he is truth. So ponder this. Some believe Jesus' plank in your eye statement is meant to be sort of a comedic, funny type thing. I've even seen videos that present it in that way. And uh, perhaps you'll understand why, I guess, if you imagine a man with a little pillar <laughs> sticking out of his eye. It does look kind of funny. And he's trying to remove a little speck of dirt in someone else's eye. It's really a picture of ridiculousness. But I think it's done in that way because judging is ridiculous. When you think about it. Why do we judge people when we ourselves fall short of a certain standard? So I think God frowns upon judgmentalism. He frowns upon hypocrisy. People that get up and act like they're all that. It's ridiculous. What's better and what God loves is humility. People who are humble. People who can stand up and admit their own faults and I mean, you've heard Anita and I as we've done journey 10 years and two weeks. You know, we're real. We muck up. We make mistakes. We do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, because you know what? Even pastors aren't perfect. They're going to make mistakes too. They might even judge someone one time. The important thing is, is that that conviction comes, and man, it does. And as I was preparing this, wow, God just hammered me. Let's keep going. Verse 3 to 4. I told you it was a bit ouchy. <laughs> Let's go. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing what the goodness of God leads you to? Repentance. So it really is, I say ouchy, it's kindness with a sharp edge. God's trying to help us here. He's not trying to condemn us. But it's just a bit of a... It's cutting, isn't it? You know, those whose habit is to judge others have an additional habit of ignoring their own faults. You probably notice that. 
you can probably all think of someone who's incredibly judgmental and often it's it can be used as a tool to deflect because their life isn't so good. So I'm going to point out the faults in other people so that I feel better about myself. Sometimes that's a habit people can get into. Now Paul asks the question, do you think you will escape God's judgment? And Paul is implying, as Jesus did, that people should practice what they preach. And that they should ponder things like God's goodness, God's forbearance and God's long-suffering. I had someone came up to me last night and thanked me for putting up with them. Well, I very quickly, and Anita was there too, we quickly said, well, thanks for putting up with us. You know, because we've all got our little idiosyncrasies and things that make us a bit different. And we all probably rub someone up the wrong way. I'm sure I rub people up the wrong way. Probably people squirming in their chair right now. That's all right, I love you. Hopefully you love me too. We do. <laughs> but... We've all got those things that make things a little different, unusual, whatever, because we're all created uniquely. But if we focus on those things rather than the unity in the room, I mean, we could go around the room and focus on all the negative things. What's that going to do? Does that glorify God? No. You know what God loves? I said it last night, didn't I? Unity. That's what God loves. When despite our differences and our cultures and our, our backgrounds and maybe even our theological understanding, despite all of that, God loves unity. Why? Because it demonstrates that Jesus is in us. It's what makes us separate and different to the RSL club down the road or the Bowls club where people gather just like this to do different things. But the thing that sets us apart is Christ in us. And how do people know Christ is in us? When we live, dwell and live in unity when we demonstrate love to one another despite all those little funny little things that make us a bit different. Let's just remember that Paul has done plenty of fault finding in his time, the writer of Romans. Now he was a zealous persecutor of Christians before he had an encounter with God. He imprisoned them. He approved their punishment. In the case of Stephen, it was death. So he's done all this kind of stuff. So if anyone shouldn't be judging, <laughs> it's this guy for what he's been through. But by the time he wrote this letter for the Romans, Paul was a changed man. He'd encountered God. And one possible reason for why Paul was so passionate about stomping out <coughs> judgmentalism in his Roman brothers and sisters is that he had been confronted with the reality of his own judgment. He had his own encounter with God and God put his finger on all those things and dealt with those things. So I think that's why he's passionate about the believer having this revelation as well, that we're not to judge. Right. Romans 2 verse 5 to 6 says, But in accordance with your hardness and your uh, impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Wake up. Wake up. Paul uses some pretty harsh language in this part of the scripture. And I think he's trying to shock his listeners. You know when you try and get attention and to, to sort of shock people to make them, oh, did he, did he just say that? I think that's one of these moments. You know, he wants them to take this matter 
of looking down on others very seriously. Imagine if I walked up to you. Remember how I said you all love me? <laughs> but imagine if I walked up to you and I said, because of the way you're living right now, you are filling a massive reservoir full of molten rock, sewage and nuclear waste. And it's filling up, up, up. And it's going to be poured out on you in the not too distant future. That's encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> what would you do if I said that to you? Some of you would probably slap me. <laughs> Block me on Facebook. <laughs> I don't know. Would you run in the opposite direction in fear? <laughs> I don't know. Would you stomp on my toe? <laughs> I don't know. How would you react? Would you grab my knees and beg me to save you? These are all different ways that you could react. You could react any number of different ways. But one thing I doubt you would do, I don't think you'd just yawn and go, oh, whatever. <laughs> you know, as if I just told you two plus two equals four. four. Yeah. Oh, that's boring. No, that's not going to happen. I don't think you're going to do that. Paul uses this harsh language to get your attention. I think in the same way, if I was to come up to you and say something like that, you'd be like, what do you mean? I hope that would be your song. What are you talking about? For the record, I wouldn't come up and say something like that. That's not my role in your life. Uh, you know, I'd certainly call out if you if I see you doing something that's a bit questionable, but I'm not going to come up and tell you you're building up molten lava and nuclear waste and just it's about to be dumped on you. Uh, but because you're judgmental, said Paul, you are as water flowing into a dam, storing up divine wrath against yourselves. That's what you're doing. And he reminds his listeners that divine wrath is nothing less than getting what you deserve. Here's a key point. We've got to realise that there's no creature hidden from his sight. So you're never in secret. You might think you are because you're alone in your room or whatever. But God is there at all times. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 confirms that. This is an awesome and freeing truth when understood properly. God is seeking to remove all pretense, all hypocrisy and all evil from the lives of those who choose to believe in him. And he's not snooping as some suggest, but you know, he's not a God that's, oh, I'm just waiting for you to slip up. He's not like that. But he's actually discipling us and training us in righteousness when we read his scripture and we're encouraged in this way, he's training us. He's not pointing the finger on you and saying, you, low life, whatever. He's not doing that. He is committed to being our heavenly father and he disciplines us for our own good. In the same way that those of us that have had kids, we discipline our kids, don't we? Because we're mean and nasty and whatever, although maybe some of us are. No, not in this church. But we train them up in the way that they would go. The Bible instructs us. Sometimes that requires discipline. Kids don't like it. In the same way that you're not liking the ouchie message today. Because it's like touching and prodding on things that maybe need addressing in your life. Think of it this way. Most of us drive that are adults here. Or your kids are in the car with you. When, when, when you're on the road, we're aware of warnings, aren't we? You see things like what? Stop signs. 
Proceed with caution signs, give way signs, no right turn, no U-turn here. Who still does a U-turn? No, pray for forgiveness later. These warnings are in place for a reason. Is, are they in place to make life difficult? <laughs> Who said yes? <laughs> Somebody said yes. Or are they in place to protect you? That's probably more like it. Thank you, young people who said yes. I know who said yes. PJ hears all the knows all Daniel. <laughs> Warnings are a form of grace to protect ourselves and others. So warnings are useless if we ignore them. Yes. <laughs> You've got the no U-turn sign there, but you ignore it. So you do one and someone runs into you. Hello, should have heeded the warning. You didn't stop at the stop sign. Someone runs into you. Hello, you should have heeded the warning. The Word of God instructs us how to live our lives, and particularly Romans chapter 2 is telling us not to judge people. And so should we heed the warning? Yes. Yes, Daniel. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, I love you, Daniel. You're awesome. That's how simple it is. God's Bible is like those warning signs as we drive. We can ignore them and then face the consequences of ignoring the warnings. Or we could read them, as ouchy as it is, particularly today, but we could take it on board and become just better people and learn from the Word of God and be encouraged. So you could choose to be condemned today, but I'm not condemning you today. I actually am believing that this message is going to set some people free in this place today. When they realise that even though, even if you're not verbalising it, if it's an internal thing that you're judging people, God's going to deal with that today. He's going to release you from that chain because it's actually holding you back, not the person you're thinking about. So God's going to do something powerful today. Let's read uh, verses 7 and 8. Eternal life to those who, by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honour and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. Look, uh, no crystal ball. We don't need to make any predictions into the future about this, because this is very clear. Paul didn't need to do that. He knew from Jesus and his disciples that those who sought after and followed God would enjoy eternal peace, because Jesus taught that. He also knew that those who rejected the truth and followed evil would experience eternal anguish. So Paul wasn't exaggerating. He was just communicating what he had learned. He was delivering a sobering description of the reality of the way that things are. And so if he were to sit with you over a cup of I don't drink coffee, hot tropical. <laughs> if he was to sit with you today at a cafe, he would tell you the exact same thing. Because truth is truth. It doesn't change, it doesn't get massaged over time into something that's a little more pleasable or plausible to our ears. It makes us more comfortable. You know, those whose hope in God will receive eternal life and those who reject truth and follow evil will experience the wrath of God. Facts. That's what young people say. Though. When something's true, you say facts. Am I right? Is that what the cool kids do? Uh, Bowens are staring at me weirdly. <laughs> My daughter doesn't. 
facts. <laughs> That's true. Be careful what they say facts to, because you need to make sure that what they're saying actually is facts. What is eternal life? What a good question to ask. We've all got our ideas of what eternal life is, means, what it looks like. You know, Christians usually think of eternal life in one of two ways. So they either equate it with heaven, thinking heaven is a place of paradise to which Christians go after death, or they think of it as everlasting life, as in life that continues forever. Both of these ideas have validity, uh, but by themselves they give sort of an incomplete picture of what biblical eternal life is. So first, we should remember that eternal life is a gift from God. And we talk about gifts a lot, don't we? Like, you can't earn that gift, can we? A gift is a gift. It's free, it'll be given. It's, it's not, well, I've worked really hard and I've done good things and so I deserve to live forever. Well, no, it's not. It's a gift that's given, not earned. Secondly, eternal life starts from the moment a person turns to Christ. Did you know that? So if you've given your life to Jesus, you're living eternal life now. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life, according to 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. The third thing we should consider is the question, how does eternal life look? To me, it looks like obedience to God. Living a life according to his desires for my life. What the word says to me. It looks like following Jesus by loving the people around you. Talked about that last night. It's a sign of unity. And we love one another. It looks like helping people who are less fortunate than you. That's what it looks like. That's what Jesus would do. It looks like bringing healing where there is pain. Order where there is chaos. All of these things are part of eternal life, which will have its fulfillment in boundless fellowship with God forever. It's a long time, isn't it? Forever. That's what eternal life to me looks like. Verses 9 and 11 says this, Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honour and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. And this is a long line called history. But Paul says there will be glory, honour and peace to everyone who works what is good. If we took this verse out of context, we might conclude it means that the good works of following the law will get people into heaven. And trust me, lots of people interpret it that way. But in chapter 3 that we'll look at in the future... Well, he'll hear Paul say, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So is Paul contradicting himself? It's a good question to ask. Because we can get a bit confused and confuzzled with these verses. I'd say no. In the verse on the, uh, that we just looked at, he is saying, Glory, honour and peace await those whose lives are filled with the natural outcome of turning to Jesus' good works. In the second verse, he's making it clear that no one can be saved by the law alone. What about how he keeps saying the Jew first and then also the Greek? Scholars debate about that all the time too. 
He says it back in chapter 1 too, the Jew first and then the Greek. Why does he keep saying it? Have you ever thought that? Why is that relevant? So to understand why, you need to think about God the same way Paul thought about him. To Paul, God was the person who made a covenant with Israel, the Jewish nation, way back in Genesis. In Genesis. In Genesis. Genesis. God said things to Israel like, Obey my voice and do according to all that I command you, so shall you be my people and I will be your God. Jeremiah 11, verse 4. That's an awesome statement when you consider God could have chosen whatever people he wanted to choose. The Jews did not obey God, however, so 2,000 years after God made his first covenant, he sent Jesus to set things straight because we needed help. You know, God said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This was the new covenant, the new promise. With Jesus, the gospel floodgates swung wide open to Gentiles, evil people, thieves, slaves, every day, you and me. So when Paul says the Jew first and also of the Greek, he's giving a chronological description of how God laid the groundwork for saving the human race. That's why he says that. The gospel shows no partiality. We are to see people as God sees them, not as we want to see them. That video is powerful, how it puts everyone in a box. And then they ask all these different questions and different people from different boxes come out. Yep, that's me. And they go back. And I love the last scene when they all come out because they're all made in the image of God. So we can label people. We can put people in certain categories. We don't even need to verbalise it. We can just do it internally. But you know what? We're committing sin when we do that because we're judging those people. You know, everyone's got a story, and you may not know it, but you can see what's happening on the outside. You don't see what's happened on the inside for decades in, in someone's life. The gospel shows no partiality. God sees people's value and their worth. And in showing no partiality, God is demonstrating how to exercise grace and not judgment. We are called to serve others, not to sort them out. That's a challenge for pastors, because sometimes we feel the burden of we need to help that person and sort out their life. But that's not our role. Do you know what our job is? To point people to Jesus. That's our job. Now, we can give practical advice, and we do if it's asked for. But really, God needs to do the healing. God needs to do the restoration. We can't do that. Sometimes we feel the pressure and the burden to do that, and we've got to constantly remind ourselves, no, this is God's work. Point them to Jesus. Believe for their situation to be ministered to. See, partiality is both an old and a new covenant truth. In Leviticus, who loves badger schemes? Leviticus is all about. 19 verse 15. God says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honour the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbour. In this context, judge means to treat them as you would be treated. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Or as Jesus put it, love your neighbour 
as yourself. Alright, verses 12 to 15, and then I'm going to come to a close. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, uh, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else accusing them. It really is time to face the facts of what's getting spoken about here. Whether you've sinned does not depend on whether you know the law, according to Paul. Some Jews of this day thought because they had the privilege of knowing the law and kept it partially that that made them righteous. That's the Pharisees. Paul says to think again. Merely hearing the law isn't enough. You must do the law. And doing it partially won't wash either. You've got to do it perfectly if you're going to satisfy the law. Because God is perfect, of course. So Paul knew it was impossible for the Jews to keep the law perfectly. They tried in their own strength and in public, parading around as if they were perfect. Though the Gentiles did not have Mosaic law, they did have a conscience. And Paul speaks of their conscience as accusing or else excusing them. So in other words, when they did something wrong, they felt guilty, but they made excuses as to why they felt that way. Both of these things, feeling guilty and defending themselves, are proof that they had violated their consciousness. See, if the Gentiles hadn't violated their consciences, they wouldn't have felt guilty. If they hadn't violated their consciences, they wouldn't have had any need for excuses. Paul is pointing out that people are condemned apart from God's law because they know they have violated their own standards, much less God's. It's that feeling when you know you've done something wrong. We all have it. You might not let on that you've got it, but you go home later and it plagues your mind until you do something about it. Every one of us is a sinner because every one of us has failed to live up to our own standards, let alone God's. So none of us is better than the other. All of us need a saviour. Paul is saying both Jew and Gentile, the first who knows the law and the second who doesn't, have the same problem. Both deserve condemnation because both are aware that they are sinners. Every culture in the world has its standards. Australian culture, we have standards. Things that are right, things are wrong. Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, Fiji, Tonga, Samoa. All these places have standards. You have laws, things that are right and things that are wrong. Now, they may vary from country to country, what's allowed, what's not allowed. But it's still considered wrong if you break the law. No culture, for example, you know, admires a man who backstabs all the people who have been kind to them. I think you could go to any culture and they'd all agree that if someone's been good to you but then you do something bad to them, that's seen as wrong. No country praises a soldier who turns their 
tail in the middle of a battle. Like you're fighting a battle and this one guy just all of a sudden feels a bit uneasy and runs. Every country is going to look at that as cowardice and not the right thing to do. So there are some universal standards that I think we all can agree with. You know, in some cultures you may be allowed to have more than one wife. Certainly not here. But no culture says you can have any woman you want anytime you want her. That's interesting. Every culture has some idea of right and wrong. It's not sufficient to know well, nor to promise well, or yeah, I mean well, but it's important to do well as best we can because we're not perfect. But we've got to have that motive. Everything I do, I just want to do it to please the Lord. God wants us to rely on the fact that He's just and that justice will be done. And our obedience or our disobedience, each in its own way, reveals the secrets that are in our heart. Secrets on which God will pronounce his righteous judgment. Because God sees your innermost thoughts and your heart. For the Christian, law and conscience are used by the Holy Spirit to confront any disobedience that leads us away from God's will. Praise God for the Holy Spirit. Praise God that he touches those areas. And I'm sure there are people in the room today where, oh, yeah, that are being prompted and touched. I want to repeat, this is not a condemnation. It comes across that way when you're talking about it because we, we feel condemned because we, we're all, you know, different ones of us are like, oh, yeah, I, I thought that thought about that person and, oh, I really shouldn't have, you know, but I'm here to tell you today that Jesus loves you, despite all of that. Jesus forgives you. And he wants to help you move on. See, the enemy wants to use this because this topic can be done internally. We can judge internally. And man, the enemy loves it because he points on, see, look what you're thinking about that. The enemy plays on that. No one else knows that you thought that, but oh. And he's in your ear about it. People are going to be released today. You're going to be set free because... Jesus doesn't want to live you, want you to live a life bound up by the consequences of your sin. He wants you to be made free from everything seen and everything unseen. Let's finish with this. Most of the time, it's fairly easy to judge between good and evil and between right and wrong. The Bible gives us some clear direction in this regard. As followers of Jesus, our goal is to remain in the light and stay away from the darkness of this world. Judging between light and darkness is an important part of our lives, but there's another kind of judgment that is much more problematic. Judgment that relies on assigning motives to someone else's actions is the kind of judgment Jesus warns against. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Frequently, People assign false motives to the behavior of others simply to distract from their own glaring misdeeds. Jesus illustrated this point with a somewhat humorous parable. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? All too often, those who complain the most about the behavior of others are guilty themselves of a much larger version of the same offense. For some reason, there are those who want to distract from their own misdeeds by calling attention to those behaviors in others. 
Jesus teaches that we are to avoid assigning motives to the behavior of others, thereby protecting ourselves from his judgment. Do not judge and you will not be judged, and do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Jesus taught that we are far better off offering understanding and assistance rather than judgment. It should be no surprise that Jesus teaches us to focus on positive reactions to others. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Jesus punctuated his teaching on this topic by warning that there are some who are so far gone there is no amount of godly instruction that will bring them back to the light. His message was simply to walk away from those who are unwilling to listen to the truth. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus had the Pharisees in mind during most of this teaching. The Pharisees were notorious for allowing their own self-interest to cloud the true desires of God. Jesus teaches us that there are no set rules and regulations that can provide you with righteousness. Only the shed blood of Jesus Christ can wash away your sins and render you acceptable to God. Praise God for sending His Son. I'm believing that people are going to be released today. Not condemned, not leaving feeling condemned, but leaving feeling free. Now, I'm not going to call people out the front for this kind of a thing, like who's judged? Everyone going, and then everyone going, yeah, that goes in there. They're all stay back in judge. We're not going to do anything like that. What we're going to do is we're all going to stand. <laughs> you can do it, Patrick. Speak to your knees. And this moment is between you and God. I'm not even going to ask you to lift up your hands and say, yeah, that's me. Or, but I'm just going to believe for God to come powerfully and address what's going on internally because for a lot of us, that's what's going on. It's internal. You, you may not necessarily have gone up to someone and said something, or, or maybe you have. But if you've made thoughts very real inside and not spoken them, you've still made those thoughts. And the enemy can use those to hold you back. So with every eye closed, I'm going to pray and I'm just going to believe that the Holy Spirit right now is going to release you from that sin of judgmentalism, that sin of hypocrisy. It's going to be taken in an instant because Jesus is victorious and he will release you right now. So Father God, Everyone under the sound of my voice, I'm praying for them, for people online, for people that will watch this later. I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would flood our hearts with your love, your kindness, your wisdom. And Lord, that we would just sense internally this release. This release of this, this thing that's been inside of us, God, that Perhaps we haven't verbalized or shared or, or maybe it has influenced the way we act towards others. God, I pray that you would release, that you would cleanse, 
that you would make our hearts new again today and that we could leave this place knowing that we've been washed clean as white as snow because your word says that by your stripes we are healed. We have every blemish removed because of your sacrifice. So Father God, touch hearts in this place today. Release people from the condemnation of sin. We'll come to it, but but, but the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so we receive that gift today. Wash us clean from our sin. Help us where we've judged others. Help us where we've acted a certain way, but we've called someone else out on it, where we've been hypocritical. Forgive us, God, because I'm sure at some point in all of our lives we've done something like that. And so, Lord, we humbly ask that you would come and wash us clean and help us to be more like you, to love others as a display of unity within the church. And, Lord, where we do need to perhaps apologise to a brother or a sister or say something, help us to have the boldness to do that, to make things right so that we can move forward. So we ask for your wisdom. We ask for your guidance. We ask for you to help us in what is a touchy, prickly topic. Lord, just put your finger on those areas that need to be pressed and just help us navigate that space and land in a place where we're pleasing to you as we follow your lead. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just